You're listening to Retail Disrupted, a podcast that explores the latest industry developments and the trends that will shape how we shop in the future. I'm your host, Natalie Berg. Richard Lim is joining me on the podcast today. Richard is the CEO of Retail Economics, an independent economics consultancy. He has a wealth of experience in data analytics, consumer research, and macroeconomics. Richard previously headed up the insight and analytics team at the BRC and also worked in M&A for Citigroup. Richard always has his finger on the pulse, and if you follow him on LinkedIn, you'll have seen his weekly posts showing all the things that are happening in retail for the week ahead. And I have to say, I've definitely gotten an idea or two for the podcast on the back of those posts. So firstly, thank you, Richard, for that. (laughs) And secondly, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure. Now, a lot of our listeners will already know you or will have heard you on TV or radio, but can you share a few words about yourself and retail economics? Sure, thanks. Uh, so, yes, yeah, so I'm Richard Liam. I'm CEO of Retail Economics. Uh, Retail Economics is an independent economics consultancy. Uh, so we focus primarily on consumer and retail, and we like to put economic analysis, econometric modelling, forecasting, behavioural economics um, at the heart of the insight that we uh, offer our, uh, our, our clients and the industry. Great. And so we're going to kick off with the economy. We're going to kick off with inflation. Just to get your thoughts on inflation, Richard, now this seems to be moving in the right direction, but we have to call out that shop prices are still rising, right? They're, they're not declining. They're just rising at a slower pace. We're certainly not sure. in a deflationary environment, right? And there are a lot of other factors, of course, that will impact consumer sentiment, consumer confidence. But I'd love to get your take on the health of the consumer right now. How do you think the average consumer is feeling? I think it's still, you know, conditions are still tough out there. And so, as you've rightly said, inflation, although it's down on a steep downward trajectory, it's still um, at elevated levels. And it's still a bit of a war of attrition when it comes to inflation, because we've just been through a period of consecutive um, months of eroding incomes. And so that's just only just changed recently. Um, And so but even if you look at the Bank of England's latest forecast, then we still might see uh earnings growth dip under inflation as we head into the end tail end of this year and heading into next year so it might not be over yet but we're certainly past the worst of it um but i also think it's good to add some context to this as well because it was only this time last year um if you remember that we'd just come out of a trust government and so you know we had a mini budget and so uh, financial markets were in turmoil. Inflation was at you know peaked at eleven point one percent, and consumer confidence was actually at an all time low. Uh, only this time last year, so lower than the depths of the financial crisis and the pandemic, and and also at that time the Bank of England were projecting a two year deep and protracted recession. So that was that you know that was this time last year, and so we've definitely kind of transitioned through the last 12 months better than many of us had expected and consumers have been much more resilient than many had expected. So although things are quite tough, definitely a lot better than where we were looking this time last year uh, into 2023. Yeah. And I think resilience is a word that comes up time and time again. I think um, we've all been surprised at how resilient consumers have been given everything that's been thrown at them. Now, 
I heard you on the radio a few weeks ago and you were talking about the cost of living crisis and how specifically how um, lower income households have been disproportionately impacted. And of course, it's the lower income consumers who spend a larger proportion of their income on essentials like food. And then that disparity, um, at least for a while, was exacerbated by the fact that many more affluent consumers had pandemic savings to prop up their spending. But that doesn't seem to be the case anymore. And now with interest rate rises, um, does you know the picture seems to change kind of fairly considerably, I think, in my view, at least. So my question for you, Richard, is how do you see this impacting spending? Do you think we've seen the effects of this take hold yet? Or might there be more pain to come for consumers in 2024? Yeah, so I think that I think the quick answer is that there's you know there's lots of moving parts and there is still more pain to come, but that pain is likely to be focused in specific cohorts of households and particularly those with you know with um, with mortgages and mortgages that are going to come up for renewal and even within that renewal mortgage um, market, there's particular groups, for example, like millennials who or kind of older millennials who were taking out mortgages over the last five years who were probably more leveraged than other groups or the you know the data shows that this is a this is a, a group of consumers that more, were more leveraged than other groups have higher debt levels as a proportion of their income and so as they roll forward to renew mortgages it's actually this particular group that's going to feel um you know the the, the kind of the the tightest squeeze with respect to to mortgages and housing costs, um, but I think you're, no, you're absolutely right in terms of the cost of living crisis or the narrative around the cost of living crisis has changed from one that was focused predominantly on the least affluent households that spent disproportionately on food, energy, transport, and now this is you know the narrative has changed as we've as interest rates are beginning to bite and mortgages are, will, will continue to renew. Um, so I think we're going to see quite a fragmented, um, a fragmented view of households and how they're going to mm. react over the next uh, over the next twelve months. But I do also feel it's probably going to be a, a, a year of two halves, and so the first half of the year is likely to um, to be more difficult, more challenging as inflation remains um, uh, kind of on its downward trajectory, trajectory but still high. Um, and then towards the tail end of or towards the second half of next year, with um, all things being equal, it looks like uh, inflation will you know, will tail off quite rapidly. The um, the, the kind of the, the you know the, the 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 wording and the narrative out of Bank of England's likely to, to to ease and start talking about a softening of monetary policy. Um, as we head towards the second uh, second half of the year and into 2025. So that might give households a bit of a boost in confidence. And of course, with confidence comes um, uh, their, uh, their, their willingness to spend. Um, so yeah, so I, I think it's generally going to be a bit of a year of two halves next year. Yeah, that's really interesting. And it's sparked another thought because so far we've talked about inflation as it impacts the consumer. But I'd really like to get your thoughts on the cost pressures facing retailers. The past couple of years, as we all know, have been challenging for retail with their own costs spiraling out of control at a time when consumer demand was particularly sluggish. It seems like a lot of these cost pressures have now eased or are easing. 
But as we look ahead to 2024, retailers will still have to contend with things like business rates and minimum wage going up by 10% in April. What's your take on this, Richard? A lot of the pressures that we saw, for example, in supply chains um, over the last couple of years have now um, have now eased. And so um, some of those, you know, inflation within uh, the producer price index, which you know, keeping it simple, the inflation rate faced by retailers um, has, you know, has eased considerably over the last uh, over the last uh, you know, six to six to nine months. Um, and even if you look at PPI, so the producer price index in China, what we see is the the costs that are facing um, retailers. If this is global retail that's importing um, from China, they're actually seeing deflation in China in terms of the cost of goods. So there's there's lots of um, so there's lots of benefits still to come through the supply chain in terms of easing cost of input prices. But also we've seen container costs that went from you know two thousand dollars a barrel, uh, to, sorry two thousand uh, um, uh, pounds per container uh, dollars per container go up to fourteen thousand back to where they were pre uh, pre um, uh, pre pandemic. So there's lots of easing um, easing pressures in terms of supply chains. But I still think that in the UK particular uh, particularly um, operating costs will still remain challenging, and so we're we still got. Um, uh, labor costs that remain a significant issue. Uh, business rates remain remains a significant burden for the industry. Uh, we still got utility uh, utility costs are higher than the, where they were. Logistics costs are still higher. So all of these wave of rising operating costs are coming through and really squeezing margins. And actually, we did a piece of work looking at the top 150 retailers across the UK, looking at pre-tax profit margins. And what we've seen is roughly pre-tax profit margins halve in the last decade. They've gone from about 8.5% to about 4.5% over the last decade. So there's a real squeeze on profitability um, for retailers. And, and as you've said, that's against a much softer outlook for consumer demand as well. So, yeah, um, And I guess at a time, too, when retailers are under a lot of pressure to continue investing in price for the consumer. So there's that challenge as well, which I imagine would further erode their margins. Um, yes, absolutely. Yeah. OK, great, Richard. So that's I'm not going to ask you any more about inflation. I think we've covered <laughs> we've covered that in great detail. So thank you for that. I want to switch actually, gears. Natalie, let me. Sorry. Sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. No, not at all. Go for it. I've got a slight theory about inflation as well, which um, share it. Which uh, which I think so. Consumer spending has been more resilient than many had expected, and so um, and as we've seen, we've seen inflation rise to eleven point one percent, and and it peaked out and it's gone down. And so, but consumers, I think what's important to recognise is that consumers are much savvier than they were, but you know if we look back at the last recession during the financial crisis and actually competition in the industry is much more intense there's lots more choice there's lots more ability for retailers uh, for consumers to trade up and down the value range and so actually i think part of the part of the um the solution that consumers have adopted in terms of controlling the amount of pressure their personal finances have been under is of course trading down trading to private labels, switching to uh, cheaper supermarkets and brands. And that change in behavior is not necessarily picked up by the official inflation data when you're just looking at inflation, CPI inflation versus wage growth. And so in many ways, those kinds of 
changes in behaviour has led to a situation where consumers are just managing their own levels of inflation. And actually, so in many, in some, I'd say in some instances, the inflation rates probably overstated the squeeze on personal finances because it can't take into account that ability for consumers to trade up and down the value range that they're so well uh, adept to do these days. Yeah, that's really interesting how consumers, I think we've all had to navigate inflation in our in our own ways. And again, up until recently, we did have some COVID savings to maybe rely on and, and help us through that. But um, yeah, really interesting stuff. Thank you, Richard. Okay, let's move on to retail sales data. We've had some interesting figures out this morning from both the BRC and Barclay Card. And Richard, I appreciate it. I'm totally springing this on you. And you probably haven't had a chance to look at the numbers. You definitely haven't had a chance to digest them. So we're going to run through some of the interesting, what I think are interesting findings of both of those releases. And then I'd love to get your initial take. So both the BRC and Barclay Card data, I appreciate they are, you know, we can't compare like for like here, but they are, they are painting a similar picture, but taking a very different tone, very different interpretation of the data. The BRC says cautious consumers are delaying Christmas spending. Total UK retail sales were up 2.7% in November. Now that's above the three-month average of 2.6%, but below the 12-month average of 4.1%. CEO Helen Dickinson, who I'm told is coming on the podcast next month, so Hopefully I'll have the opportunity to pose these direct these uh, questions directly to Helen. But Helen said that Black Friday initially had the desired effect, but the momentum failed to hold throughout the month. So I thought that was interesting. Spent a lot of time talking about Black Friday on this podcast. Now, Barclay Card data is really interesting. They said that consumer card spending grew by a similar amount, by 2.9% year on year in November. They said that consumer confidence in the ability to spend on non-essential items was at its highest level since April. And that makes sense because people have generally been reining in their discretionary purchases, but if the whole high street is on sale, then yeah, you might feel a little bit more confident to spend. Barclay Card also called out the fact that restaurants fell further into decline during the month of November. Over a third of consumers said that the cold weather and dark evenings have had an impact on their spending patterns, and this has resulted in a boost for what they refer to as experiences, or at-home experiences. They said that spending on takeaways was up 6%, spending on digital content and subscriptions was also up by about 6%. The final season of The Crown has helped up helped with that consumers are staying home they're binging on tv i've been watching a lot of the crown but also a lot of virgin river as well i'm not ashamed to admit (laughs) but we're staying home we're not going out as much and the restaurants are feeling it the other final thing i'd like to call out here is what barclay card refers to as revenge spending which they say has boosted the travel sector again the travel sector has recorded double digit growth for 11 of the past 12 months And looking to 2024, a fifth of consumers that they surveyed said that they're planning more holidays next year to catch up on trips that they missed during lockdown. So lots of interesting things. I've thrown so much at you, Richard. I'd love to get your initial take and hear what you think of all this. 
I think the first thing to mention is that there's um, there's a you know a huge polarization between values and volumes, um, and so if you look at the uh, the value data, yes, it kind of suggests that people are spending more, and that is the case. Um, and we've seen consistent growth in values over the last uh, over the last year, right throughout the you know, right throughout the. Uh, the cost of living crisis, but of course, all of that growth in values is being driven by inflation. And if you look at the ONS data, and you look at because uh, you know, BRC just focus on value data, but if you look at the ONS volumes data, then what we've seen is a consistent decline in the amount of stuff that consumers are buying. For um, it's you know, it's around about eighteen to twenty months now. So for eighteen twenty, for eighteen to 20 consecutive months year on year comparisons show that people are buying less and that's and that's essentially you know the impact of you know trading down and cancelling some products and just decreasing the frequency of 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 some purchases as well so that you know so there's lots of moving parts um um around the different uh, the different timings and seasonal comparisons and, and things like that. So yeah, lot, lot, lots of lots of different things to to take account of. But I like, I like the expression of uh, the the kind of the inexperience uh, and and presumably making the most of Netflix subscriptions and Sky and watching things at home as you know as as the nights have uh, have drawn in and and they've got colder. So yeah, probably not surprising given uh, given this is the kind of usual behaviour that we'd see most years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, it's, it's always a time of year where we kind of, you know, cocoon and stay home and uh, and maybe we're inspired to even more because of, you know, the pressures on our on our wallets. Um, and so entertaining at home. And in fact, I was at a, uh, a major high street retailer, which hosted an yeah. event last week. <laughs> Can't say any more than that. Um, but a couple of interesting things they said. Well, firstly, they just signed off on Christmas 2024. So just so fascinating to see how much planning goes into that. They start their planning in August and they sign off early December yeah. for the next year. I mean, it's I just can't imagine how hard of a job that must be. Um, but also they said that party food was being brought out earlier in the month this year because mm -hmm. they're expecting more people to entertain at home um, yeah. instead of, you know, it's all going out to the pub and the restaurant or wherever. So I thought that was interesting, too. I think retailers, especially the supermarkets, are really expecting, um, yeah, for expecting consumers to celebrate and maybe do more of that at home than they have done in the past. So. Yeah, I mean, like, all, all, all of the research that we've done in lead up to Christmas actually shows that people are still, you know, still looking to be very cautious, you know, cautious in terms of spending, uh, looking to try to make their, uh, their their budget stretch as far as possible, looking to pull forward their spending, um, their Christmas spending into you know October, November, taking advantage of Black Friday to do a lot of their uh, a lot of their shopping there. And so, in terms of the distribution of festive sales in the run up to Christmas, um, it has completely changed over the last you know five years. But this year, compared to last year, you know it's it, the distribution of sales looks very similar. And so we've got a kind of a huge peak in November around Black Friday, where people are taking advantage of the discounts and some of that Christmas spends um, creeping into that. Um, and then a, a kind of a smaller hump in terms of non-food uh, as we as we get kind of get nearer to Christmas. But it seems though as though people have brought forward some of their spending into um into october 
just to really you know, spread out as much as they can uh, and uh, spread out the spending as much as they can um, and, and be a bit more planned and tactical around their Christmas spending. And so some of that poured forward spending is likely to come of the detriment of sales uh, in November as well, potentially. Yeah, and I think it'll be interesting to see what happens in the final days before Christmas. It does feel like uh, a lot of sales are being concentrated around, you know, around these big events like Black Friday and Cyber Monday. But of course, as I've talked about a lot on the podcast recently, it's it's Black November, right? I mean, John Lewis yeah. started on the 4th of Absolutely. November. So as you say, you know, consumers, I think, are looking to spread the cost and and bring those purchases a little bit earlier. But at the same time, I, I feel there's going to be a, a last minute rush. And that's what we're hearing from some U.S. retailers as well. I know Best Buy's in the U.S. has said uh, said similar that they're expecting you know, a big sales push in the final days. And, and again, there's always that game of chicken, right? Where consumers think, oh, yeah. are there going to be more discounts? I'm going to hold out. And um, yeah, yeah. So, and but- it just feels like it's come around really quickly this year. So I don't know if that's just me and life being busy, but, um, but there we go. <laughs> So just to switch gears a little bit, let's talk about digital transformation. And I don't like to dwell on, on the pandemic. I, I think, you know, we kind of um, acknowledge the effects of the pandemic. But I think if we go back to the dark COVID times for a minute, we have to acknowledge that it was a huge catalyst for digital transformation. And I think as consumers, we've definitely benefited from that. I think we've kind of taken retailers' digital transformation efforts for granted because very quickly things become the norm and before you know it we're expecting something even better and even more frictionless and even more you know convenient and easy so it's tough for retailers to keep up and something i keep coming this phrase i keep coming back to is that perpetual disruption requires perpetual innovation because retail is always evolving right it's it's this living yeah. thing um so with that in mind richard i wonder how you would assess retailers' efforts to digitize their businesses, have they done enough? And where might there be room for improvement as we look to the future? Yeah, no, it's, it's a really interesting, uh, really interesting question, a really interesting topic, because I think from from the work that we do for some of our clients and also how we, you know, the conversations that we're having um, within the industry, I think what's really clear is that it's a really uneven landscape when it comes to digital capabilities and so you've got some retailers on one end of the scale that um you know are best in class trying to integrate um you know best in class technology with the best partners and some of that's around some of the new technology around gen ai and trying to use that for better demand forecasting and um and personalization and and things but then you've got retailers on the other end of the scale where they're still grappling with um, data, still grappling with not having enough, enough data about their customers. They don't have loyalty schemes necessarily. And so they're, they're, still, um, they're still kind of uh, feeling around in the dark when it, comes to, uh, when it comes to how best to push forward their digitization efforts. And so, yeah, so we see this kind of really uneven landscape across, uh, across the sector. And actually, I think that we've got to a point where we're seeing a gulf emerge between those retailers that are really have really invested in their digital transformation over the last few years they continue to embrace uh, innovation creativity and disruption um, and so there's this gulf opening up between those that have those that have that kind of 
sophistication in, in digital and those that don't. Um, and, uh, and I can only see that growing as we see, as we, as we're kind of on this really steep curve of technological, um, progression. Um, so yeah, so kind of really uneven picture. Yeah. Yeah. That is really interesting. And it, I mean, it almost feels like in this day and age, you just can't afford, you can't afford to be complacent. You can't afford not to invest in technology and digital transformation, but still, as you say, there are some retailers out there that are still kind of. Um, yeah, failing to keep up, failing to invest. So I think uh... well, it's, it's it's just it's just a huge challenge, you know. So if you look at some of the you know consecutive waves of disruption, whether that's from the pandemic, whether that's from the cost of living crisis, margins being squeezed, and so understandably, there's there's a lot of retailers that have been sitting there um, and just being completely focused on protecting profitability at the expense of investing in their business and so and so there's you know and so for those retailers that don't you know feel like they have little choice other than to kind of batten down the hatches cut costs focus on profitability for some of them the reality is there's just little room for investment when it comes to um digital but eventually you know that's gonna that that's 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 going to um yeah be to the detriment of the of the, of the business in the long run yeah, I mean, I think what's interesting is I've I've definitely been hearing more retailers looking to technology, not just to enhance the customer experience, of course, but also um, to reduce their own cost base. And obviously, there's a lot of technology out there, a lot of, around automation that will help retailers with with you know addressing this. But there's always a huge initial outlay with any kind of tech investment. So, um, so yeah, absolutely. I think there is this, this gulf emerging as you so eloquently put it. Yeah. Well, I think that the other thing for me as well is that, you know, digital transformation is actually bringing about different business models as well. You know, it's allowing retailers to do things that they couldn't do um, even just a few years ago because of, as you said, you know, the, the kind of the, the better efficiency, the use of data, more sophisticated use of data and how that's changed uh, the ability for for retailers to have to embrace different business models. So when you were talking, I was just actually it reminded me of um, of ASOS that just a couple of weeks ago was talking about uh, their test and react model, and so they're they're kind of using they're trying to become faster and nimbler um, and 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 trying to get from design to site within two weeks, and then using kind of five hundred lines. To test uh, to test the demand before they go into kind of full on production of particular SKUs. So, you know, mm. using really small runs, testing, reacting to the model, and within a couple of weeks, being able to uh, being able to kind of put that uh, put that onto the um, onto their website. So that test and react model counts for one percent of sales today. They want to grow that to ten percent of their sales in the future. Oh, wow. um, and it's, yeah, and it, and, it, and it's kind of it's it's speaking the same language as um, as uh, Shein as I well. I was going to say that sounds very Shein. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, so we I was kind of um, uh, yeah, well, I was, I was I was with them uh, quite recently. It's kind of like no um, no no secrets here, but they they were saying to me that they were testing up to five thousand lines per day. And some of those lines wow. were kind of like 200 garments at a time, but testing up to 5,000 a day worldwide. Oh, so it's kind of like... can't get your head around numbers like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. No, that's interesting. And obviously, you know, retailers like Shein and ASOS and all the fast fashion retailers are under a lot of pressure to, um, to you know, 
to be more environmentally conscious. And I guess in doing that, I don't know, I'm just kind of thinking off the top of my head, but I, I would imagine that using data um, and being more agile in your approach not only has the potential to deliver a better customer experience, but also there's the potential to reduce your overall carbon impact and you know mm-hmm. reduce waste and that sort of thing and really creating things and shipping things around the world that customers really want. So I think that's that's potentially yeah. another uh, interesting well, aspect I think, I think of that. It feeds into the efficiency point, and so you know, digital transformation, you know, is is in many uh, instances just a drive towards better efficiency, better productivity, um, trying to improve profitability as well. And if you look at most businesses, and you look at their carbon emissions and their um, and uh, and the carbon footprint, you know, the first thing that all businesses can do is to try to improve efficiency try to reduce waste and so did you know and so technology is definitely a way to a route to to try to do that yeah yeah because financial sustainability and environmental sustainability as we know go hand in hand so makes perfect sense now richard um I'm conscious of time. I mean, we could be here for hours and I guess that's the good thing about podcasts is there, are, <laughs> there is no limit, but I, I won't keep you too much longer. I do want to touch on something you mentioned previously, which was generative AI. Mm. And as we all know, AI and specifically gen AI is just everywhere at the moment. So can you talk us through how you see AI being deployed in the industry? What are the opportunities for retailers in this space? Yeah, I mean, it's such a. It is, I mean, obviously, it's the it's the buzzword, and actually, the, the talking about this um, is uh, is kind of timely because it was only about a year ago that uh, that um, that ChatGPT was actually launched. So it's been a kind of a year that ChatGPT has been with us, and there's been this explosion of different technologies around um, Gen AI, and and a lot of that is you know is tapping into um, ChatGPT as well. And I got the I got asked the other day actually, it's kind of um, the question was, uh, is Gen AI the new metaverse? You know, is it just a kind <laughs> oh. of flash in the pan? Are we going to be talking about something else, uh, you know, this time next year? Um, I think the answer to that is, is in, in my view, the answer to that is no. And I think that the, the big thing here is that Gen AI is solving genuine pain points for retailers. And so retailers are looking at the technology, looking at how they can apply the technology throughout their business. And this isn't just about um, you know, personalization. This is about applying Gen AI throughout the whole of the retail value chain, right from kind of you know design and concept to sourcing and route optimization through to uh, through to um, personalization. But then you know right throughout right to the end when they're using uh, Gen AI for chatbots and things like that. But some of the key things, though, that I think is where it's really going to touch retail um, and really change what retailers do and how they embrace the technology is certainly around better demand forecasting, better inventory management, fraud detection is another area as well, uh, personalization, of course, um, but also just using using the data to be able to, um, or using Gen AI to, to have a more sophisticated use of data. Um, and I was talking to one of our clients quite recently, and, and the way that they were describing how they were using Gen AI, Gen AI within their business was, was I mean, it was just so impressive. And, you know, the, the kind of the 30 second summary of this conversation <laughs> is that, um, you know, they're using hundreds of different data points for their customers 
um, around some of this around yeah, different characteristics, whether that's age or affluence or previous purchase history or information they might have on kind of like wealth or region. You know, so there's hundreds of different attributes that they're using to be able to serve them the best next action. So if a consumer's bought a pair of black jeans, then using data and the pool of, you know, 20 or so million customers that they have, they will determine whether they will, the, the best next action is to serve them some kind of ad for a white t-shirt because they previously bought a black pair of shoes, not a blue t-shirt, a white t-shirt because, and then it's about serving them the right ad on the right platform at the right time of the day, the right day of the week. Is it text? Is it mobile? To push them towards a particular skew that that has the best propensity for them to spend. So it's kind of like this sophisticated use of data, I think, you know, is, 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 a, is a really fascinating area using, using Gen AI. Now, the last thing I'd love to get your views on, Richard, is sustainability. I know we've talked a lot about digital and the pressures facing both retailers and consumers, but the ESG agenda is also still going strong as it should be. And I think it's also a reminder of all the plates that retailers are spinning these days. They need to offer value. They need to be digital. They need to differentiate and stay relevant. They also need to aim for net zero. I mean, there's just so much that retailers are are juggling at the moment. So um, in terms of sustainability, though, what are you seeing in this space and where do you see opportunities for retailers to go further? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah, no, it's, it's kind of, it's a, again, you can't, we can't do a podcast, Natalie, without talking about <laughs> sustainability, at least for five minutes, um, because it is, you know, it's not going away and it's going to be the, you know, it's going to be something that people are going to be talking about for you know, decades to come. Um, I think the, there's, it's interesting because I think there's, there's a number of different pressures uh, for retailers in terms of sustainability. And of course, some of that's um, around their transition towards decarbonisation and how they're going to, you know, on their path to net zero, what do they need to do? How, how quickly are they going to do it? Um, and I think there's different pressures in different parts of the, uh, of, of the, of the sector as well. Um, we did a piece of work and one of the things that came out was that just a very high level is that there's quite a big difference in terms of um, net zero targets when it comes to private and public companies. And so public companies are a bit more under the spotlight. And so there's uh, and so, you know, they have to answer to their investors and they have to go to you know, the uh, you know, they're, they're kind of AGMs. And, 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 and so there's and so there's lots of questions around um whether or not they have credible plans for decarbonisation, whether they have science-based targets for the reduction of scope one, scope two, how are they measuring it? So there's just a lot more pressure. And so I think that there are there's, there is definitely a kind of a split between public and private. And then even within the retail space, if you look at the largest um, kind of listed retailers in the UK, there's still only about two thirds of them that actually have a net zero target at all. And so, you oh, know, wow. so it's kind of, it shows that we still got, you know, there's still a lot of work to do in this area. And so, um, and so, you know, and so whether or not retailers are, um, are kind of doing the right thing, um, I think lots of them are, and there's lots of effort there, but we're still in, in, in its infancy when it comes to, like, for example, measuring things like carbon emissions within scope three. 
And so, you know, if we can't do that accurately and we can't measure the reduction in carbon emissions, then it it, it becomes quite difficult to um, to measure progress. But you know, there's there's plenty of retailers though out there that are doing great things in terms of um, you know, credible plans um, who are working towards being kind of carbon neutral. So uh, there there is you know, there's there's lots of uh, good case store, uh, good um, good cases for that. I think the other side of the coin, though, is around consumers and whether consumers. Um, uh, I think consumers care, but I think it's. I, I, I think there's a question around whether or not they're prepared to either pay for more sustainable options or change their behaviour at the expense of convenience. And so, and so they have to make a sacrifice, right? There has to be some kind of sacrifice. And there's always this disconnect between what people say they, they want to do or will do and then what they actually go and do. So, yeah, ab- absolutely. Yeah. So that, that kind of um, intentions behavior gap, I think, comes through. You know, if you, if, you, if you look at any kind of survey evidence around this, there'd probably be you know, 90% of consumers are prepared to pay you know, more for sustainable produced products, just made up that stat, by the way. But, you know, there's, there's you <laughs> know, there's, quote you on it. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, there's, you know the, the, what, what consumers say they're going to do and what they do in reality are two different things. And, um, and I think a really good example of this, actually, is um, I was thinking about a product that could be, um, there was kind of like little ba- um, kind of, um, there was little uh, brand loyalty, it was a kind of homogenous type of product, um, and actually, there's a like a, a, like a lot of awareness around the potential damage that this was doing to the environment. And so, the product that I was thinking about is bottled water. And so, you know, most people are aware that bottled water is usually kind of um, uh, single-use plastic, albeit some of it's recycled, probably only about fifty percent, but some of it is recycled. But People are aware of aware of single use plastic, bottled water. You don't have to. You know, most most water consumption um, can be done out of a tap, and actually, more than fifty percent of bottled water is for home or work consumption, so it can be easily uh, easily replaced. But in the UK, we consume four billion bottles of water out of single use plastics. Wow! So still today. Still today, it's enough wow. to go around the world ten times. So we have you know, four billion uh, bottles of water um, every year. We're still buying more bottled water. It's not like we're on a kind of a downward curve of people stopping buying single-use plastic bottled water. We're still buying more bottled water. And then, if you think about the people that say they care about the planet the most, it's Gen Zs. And actually, who buys the most bottled water per capita? Gen no, Zs. no, really? Wow, <laughs> yeah. that's so surprising, also, though. I mean, I know we just said are, there's this disconnect, but still, that surprises me. Well, I think yeah, I think this is the thing. This is why I was so interested in seeing, you know, choosing products where it, you know, you could easily easily be kind of exchanged to something else and there was high awareness and things like that just to see you know what does the data tell us about consumption of something that we know has uh kind of externalities when it comes to the environment and actually we're still buying more it's gen z's that are buying the most per capita and then when you ask consumers who's responsible for the reduction of carbon emissions when it comes to uh bottled water it's i mean the answer is it's not me it's yeah. the government it's manufacturers, it's retailers, and actually there's only about 16% of consumers that say, yes, the responsibility 
for carbon emission reduction is actually uh, my responsibility. So yeah. I just think it's kind of a, a, an example of, of, of how complicated I think it's going to be, uh, you know, to, to, to get to our, if we are to achieve our net zero go- goal by 2050, I'm not sure necessarily it can be left in the, hand of, the hands of consumers um, or private corporations. Richard, thank you so much for your time and for sharing such valuable insights with us. To our listeners, if you want to hear more from Richard, you can head over to retaileconomics.co.uk or connect with him on LinkedIn. And I will be including all of those links in the show notes. Thank you for listening to Retail Disrupted. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to support the podcast, please leave a rating or review or share it with others. It really makes a difference. 